This is the Ultra Running History Podcast. I'm your host, Davey Crockett. Thanks. Thanks for coming. This is episode 60, part 7 of the History of the 100 Milers. This episode will cover the history of 100 Milers through the Great Depression and World War II years, with a salute to those who marched 100 miles while serving in the war. This episode is sponsored by my 50 and 100 mile race, the Pony Express Trail 50 and 100, held on the historic trail in the West Desert of Utah. No, no ponies allowed. The race is still on for Friday, October 16th, 2020. It is the most COVID-friendly ultra around because you run in your own bubble. Wow, that's cool, man. Support is provided by your own family or friends who drive along and watch you suffer. (laughs) To register, go to PonyExpress100.org or to Ultrasignup.com. Now to the story. A hundred miles, a hundred miles, a hundred miles, a hundred miles. You can hear the whistle blow a hundred miles. After decades of 100-mile races, matches, and successful finishes in less than 24 hours before 1930, The Great Depression turned ultra-runners' attention to more important matters, surviving. Opportunities to earn a living as a professional runner dried up as public interest waned. Memories of past accomplishments and records faded. Occasionally, the newspapers would pull out of their dusty archives a story about Edward Payson Weston's walking wonders, which were treated as, believe it or not, oddities, rather than something that others could accomplish. But the spark of running or walking 100 miles on foot still smoldered during the next two decades despite the severe difficulties of the Depression and World War II. Isolated 100-mile accomplishments took place to remind the public what the human body could do, but 100 miles was still considered to be very far and out of reach by all but freakish athletes. In England, Arthur Newton accomplished a new 100-mile record of 14 hours 6 seconds on the Bath Road in 1934 at the age of 51, the crowning running triumph of his career. See episode 59. Despite all the attention received on this occasion, Newton knew that others would come who would run 100 miles faster. He was convinced that breaking 14 hours was possible. After all, he knew that back in 1882, Charles Rowell reached 100 miles in 13 hours, 26 minutes, indoors on a small track in Madison Square Garden. Others did come, even during the tragic decades of the 1930s and 1940s. Harry Ballington was born July 14, 1912 in South Africa. By 1932, at the age of 20, Ballington emerged as a promising new runner. In the early 1930s, a veteran runner, Vernon Jones, spotted young Ballington on a training run. He noticed that he had huge calf muscles and said to Ballington, Young man, you ought to take part in the Comrades Marathon. Ballington set his sights on running Comrades, the legendary race in South Africa of about 54 miles. 
He did in 1933 and finished in a surprising fourth place with eight hours, one minute. With that success, he put on his concentration on the ultra distances and believed he could win comrades. He would become one of the greatest of all the comrades champions. In 1933, Ballington joined a field of 84 runners in the 13th edition of Comrades. The weather was poor with rain and freezing wind. By the halfway point, he was running in third place, but he soon took charge of the race and passed the leaders and quickly extended his lead. Wearing a sweater as protection against the rain and cold, Ballington forged ahead in the closing stages. There was no stopping him. Comrades had a new great champion. He became only the second runner after Newton to break the seven-hour barrier with a time of six hours, 50 minutes. Ballington's success continued, winning comrades again in 1934 and 1936. During the Depression era, he became known as the world's greatest ultra-distance runner. In 1937, Ballington skipped running comrades and instead wanted to go after Arthur Newton's 50 and 100-mile records that he set in England. Newton was the driving force behind Ballington's efforts that were sponsored by News of the World. Ballington traveled to England in April with his expenses paid for him. Newton paid special attention to Ballington, escorting him by bike on his training runs. He logged an astonishing 1,100 miles on training runs in one month. At a special May 22, 1937 London to Brighton running race, eight runners including Ballington competed. The 24-year-old ran steady to his own schedule, crewed by Newton. It was reported, He maintained practically the same pace throughout. The headwind and rain made conditions extremely difficult for the great part of the way, but he showed no signs of fatigue and finished with a very strong sprint. After he crossed the finish line, it was announced that he had beat Newton's 1924 record by a minute and a half. But then a confusing announcement went out that he had failed by 12 seconds. But then later on, it was determined, because of different finishing points, Ballington's run was about 100 yards further and the official time was adjusted to 3 hours, 53 minutes, 42 seconds, beating Newton's time by 1 second, a record held for the next 16 years. On July 3, 1937, Ballington again, assisted by Newton, ran the 100-mile Bath Road from Box to Hyde Park. His crew had challenges. Newton had to deal with an unfortunate episode in a tea shop, where the haughty proprietor would only serve tea in cups for drinking on the premises and would not allow Newton to fill a flask to take outside to the thirsty Ballington. Nevertheless, Ballington crushed Newton's time, finishing in 13 hours, 21 minutes, which also beat Charles Orwell's 1882 time of 1326. For the following week, both Ballington and Newton held daily public appearances at the News of the World Sports Department. Through the challenging World War II times of the 1940s, not much is known about Ballington's running efforts, but in 1947, after the war, Ballington won the Comrades Marathon for the fifth and final time at the age of 47. College students got into the 100-mile game during the 1930s. In 1933, six naive but determined students from the University of Cambridge in England set out to walk 100 miles in 24 hours from Cambridge to London and back. Their motivation was to win $500 or lose $10. 
Four of them were clearly in over their heads and quit early. Two others did well. R.A. Mason developed bad blisters but managed to make it to mile 9 before quitting. G.N. Wilson went the furthest but gave up at mile 95 with only a few minutes remaining. In 1934, four other Cambridge students fared better and finished 100 miles in 24 hours, winning the 50 to 1 bet. During the World War II years, 100-mile races ceased, but some solo endurance efforts were sparked due to comments made by Brigadier General Edmund L. Snitzgruber, who was the author and composer of The Caissons Go Rolling Along. He boldly stated that American youth were soft. In January 1941, speaking before a church's men's club in Kansas City, Missouri, he said, Our men have been living too soft a life. He stated that the military draft had revealed an astonishing weakness in the physical, vocational, and moral qualities of the youth. He claimed that one out of every two youths were rejected because of physical fitness. Gruber's comments became a bit of an uproar and debate across America. Newspaper commentary included, We know of no way to prove the general is in error and no way to prove that he is right. But the young men across the country found a way to provide some anecdotal proof that Gruber was wrong. A week before Gruber's brash statement, Ted Morton, age 19, a former high school track star from Kansas City, was denied a job as a clearinghouse messenger because the company's president didn't think he had the physical stamina for the work. The lad looked run down to me. Miffed over his rejection and mad about General Gruber's comments, Morton started a crusade to prove his doubters wrong. Morton first ran 34 miles in 13 hours, 29 minutes, with a moving time of 7.30 as proof. A $10 wager also pushed him along. He ran in alternating hours, resting an hour in between. His inspiring accomplishment was performed on a 40-yard high school track. The day after, he said, I feel real fine today. Got up and went to church too. I hope the general hears about this. The general did hear about it. Gruber wrote a letter of congratulations to the youth stating that he hoped the performance would inspire young men to watch their health and keep themselves in good physical condition. Morton was soon hired by the army as a messenger for a commanding officer and made daily walks and runs for 8 to 15 miles to deliver messages. Morton continued to prove Gruber wrong. In July 1941, he organized a 50-mile race in Kansas City that included six former track stars. The race was billed as an attempt to prove that American youth is adequately fit to defend their country. A six-mile course was used in Swope Park, and the young men were required to rest for 15 minutes every two hours. Thousands of spectators came to watch. The oldest contestant, Milton Graham, a 30-year-old truck driver, gave out at the end of eight miles, <laughs> complaining that a football knee was troubling him. As the sun climbed and the mileage passed 20 miles, there was little running going on. Ted Morton collapsed three times on his fourth six-mile lap, but he recovered sufficiently from severe leg cramps to finish second, dropping out at the 44-mile point. Bill Brindenthal, a 19-year-old mail clerk for Southwestern Bell Telephone Company, won the 50-mile race with a time of 10 hours, 17 minutes. 
Brindenthal's crew consisted of two amateur boxers who gave him massages 25 times during the race. They only brought rubbing alcohol, sugar cubes, and salt tablets. I am hungry. Brindenthal went on to serve in the Army Air Corps, but died while serving in the war two years later at the age of 22. The notoriety Morton received for his running exploits continued to spur him on. In September 1941, he attempted to run 100 miles in less than 24 hours, going from Nevada, Missouri to Kansas City, Missouri. Physicians warned him that he should not plan to run the entire stretch at one time. He ran on US Highway 71 with the help of a crew driving along and his girlfriend's father as a pacer. He ran 6 to 10 miles at a stretch and then rested 10 to 15 minutes. Morton was successful and reached 100 miles in 23 hours, 54 minutes. Immediate response from the youth of America. Army, Navy, and Marine recruiting stations bulge to overflowing. Young men stand hours for an opportunity to personally answer the challenge. Courageous 100-mile efforts took place during the World War II years in many forms. In 1941, E.G. Barbette of Canada was determined to sign up and serve in the war. He walked 100 miles in two nights and a day in order to arrive in time at a recruitment office. He walked without stopping to sleep, eating from a meager lunch which he carried with him. At the time, it was raining and the going was tough. He had to ford waist-deep through a cold stream with a strong current. His determination paid off. He passed the examination and left dressed in a uniform. A Dutch Marine, Bert, who visited the USO camp at Camp Davis, North Carolina, told an interesting tale to those there. When the Germans closed the schools in Holland, the students went off to work on outlying farms. Bert became a farmhand about 100 miles away from his home city of Amsterdam. He said, Two days after Christmas, I was in the field and looked up, saw my mother standing close by. Thinking I was dreaming, I rubbed my eyes to wipe away the tears. Then my mother spoke, saying, Merry Christmas, son. It really was my mother. She had walked the 100 miles to be with me on Christmas, but the journey had taken her longer than she anticipated, and so she was late two days. Many 100-mile marches took place round the world. In 1942, a large number of Australian troops completed a 100-mile march in the Middle East. They marched with full equipment and took five days. Also in 1943, 4,000 soldiers marched 100 miles across the Blue Mountains of Sydney to Bathurst in Australia. One of the first Italian infantry units marched 100 miles that year through the Calabria Mountains to join the Allies. Rangers in the United States Army received especially tough training. Their training included toughening up day and night exercises in which they often marched 100 miles in two days with little rest and few rations. Such marches led them up through rivers and up steep cliffs. They wiggled through barbed wire and dense undergrowth, and to simulate battle conditions, live bullets whizzed over their heads or kicked up dust behind them. Lieutenant Omar N. Bradley served at Fort Riley, Kansas, where his artillery battery was the first known unit to complete a 100-mile forced march in less than 24 hours. 
Yes, even in the Army, sub-24-hour 100-milers were accomplished by men in uniform. Hut, hook, hip, hook, the heads are up, the chests are out, the arms are swinging and... In June 1943, the Army conducted a forced march of 100 miles from Atlanta to Fort Benning, Georgia. The purpose was to assess the readiness of the 176 infantry soldiers for battle. The men were picked at random, and they were marched about 40 miles per day. The results helped determine what speed foot troops could cover over a distance of 100 miles and still be able to put up a good fight at the conclusion of the march. In 1943, Sergeant Alban Petchel of Steubenville, Ohio, was on a plane flying as a gunner, heading to the war in Africa. When they reached Central Africa, near a combat zone, Petchel's plane became separated from the rest and wound up running out of gas over the Sahara Desert. They rode the plane into the sand dunes, which were everywhere, and about two stories high. They bounced across the tops of four and slammed head-on into the fifth. All three men were painfully hurt. The men crawled out of the wreck plane, patched up their wounds, and made a shelter out of their life raft. After three days, the wounded men decided that they would have to walk out of the desert. They sprinkled the plane with gasoline and set it on fire. They then started off on what they knew would be a perilous 100-mile journey, carrying a five-gallon can of water slung from a stick. Along the way, they battled sickness and freezing nights. Two officers became delirious and quarreled violently. Finally, they found tracks and the same day ran into a camel caravan. The Arabs fed them and invited them to join them. The boys tried to ride the camels, but it was so rough and horrible that they finally had to get off and walk. After walking a total of 100 miles across the desert, they finally arrived at a French unit. As prisoners were captured during the war, once freed, many told tales of 100-mile marches as prisoners of war. The most famous and probably the most tragic was the Death March of Bataan in the Philippines. The distance was likely quite a bit less than 100 miles, but to those who participated and survived, it was typically described as a 100-mile journey. After four months of intense battle, on April 9, 1942, American troops surrendered to the Japanese in the Philippines. Unequipped to house or feed 70,000 prisoners of war, the Japanese take the weakened soldiers on a brutal 60-mile forced march. Men who fall out of line are bayoneted or shot. 15,000 perish on what would become known is the Bataan Death March. Lieutenant Kermit Van described his 100-mile death march. He felt lucky that he survived the march, but he suffered terribly. He wrote, This prisoner army of 3,000, most of them dirty, ragged, and unshaven, was led to a road and under cloudless skies were ordered to march. None of us got any water until nightfall. We had passed many natural wells off the road, but the bayonets wouldn't let us near them. At times we were ordered to sit down in the road under the hot sun. Anyone who tried to stand up was knocked down. Anyone who tried to stretch out his legs was forbidden to relax. We sat there for four or five hours. 
It wasn't long before I came down with malaria, beriberi, dysentery, and other ailments. It wasn't until the fifth day that we were given any food. There was almost no conversation among the men. They were too sick, too weak, too hollow-eyed, and sunken-cheeked to care about anything except home. I was so weak and dizzy that I don't remember too much about the rest of the march. I believe we made the 100-mile march in seven days. 100-mile runners are concerned about losing too much weight during their events. Lieutenant Van lost 55 pounds during his march to a weight of 105 pounds. There were also prisoner 100-mile marches in Germany. Lieutenant Donald Alfred Ohl of Iowa City, Iowa, was crossing the Moselle in France with his unit in September 1944. The bridge we crossed was blown up behind us. I found myself looking down the mouth of a German 88mm cannon. The men were marched 100 miles to the German border, with 45 miles of it in one day. Lieutenant Ohl suffered from broken arches in his feet. After the second day's march, they were handed over to the SS, put in prison cells, and eventually sent off to Stalag. At the end of the war, he was freed. In 1944, near the end of the war in Europe, the German army was in retreat from France. Thousands of Allied prisoners were being held in France. They were told by their German captors that they were going to be marched 100 miles through the war chaos to Germany. John Mecklen was an American correspondent who had been taken prisoner and wrote about the terrifying 100-mile march. About two to 3,000 men began the 100-miler in a column about a mile long. When we started, we were in reasonably good spirits, but that did not last long. After an hour or two, the whole column moved in a sullen, beaten silence. The men and the Germans were in constant fear of being bombed by the American planes who had no idea that a prisoner 100-mile march was taking place. We made an ideal target. The road ran almost entirely through open rolling fields. Even the ditches were too shallow for good protection. I carried a blanket, a bag, a canteen of water, toilet articles, and two cans of German tinned meat. And with each step, the load became heavier. The Germans set the initial pace, but before long, the prisoners, who were younger and in better shape, took over the pace. Finally, the exhausted Germans decided to use a bus to shuttle prisoners in a round-robin fashion up the road in five-mile stretches. Cheating the 100-mile course for stretches was a luxury as they rode with their guard in a corner of the bus with a revolver balanced on his lap. Soon, the 100-miler became a true endurance contest. They walked steadily for three hours without rest. The Germans knew they were racing ahead of the advancing Allied forces and were very nervous. Finally, the bus crashed into a ditch and was broken down. There would be no more rides during this 100-miler. When a small pickup truck came by, the Germans elbowed each other to pile in, one sobbing that he could walk no further. But the Americans had no choice but to continue their long walk. The whole atmosphere among the men in the column was beginning to change. They became a sweaty, dragging anguish. Panic was beginning to seep into the minds of the men on the endless road, while the sun beat down and seared everything. When the column passed villages, we prisoners would straighten up and walk firmly. As they continued on, the Germans started talking in low voices, and the prisoners feared that they would soon be shot. A guard told them that they could run into the woods and escape around the next bend. Was he trying to give them a reason to get shot? 
Mecklen and a few others went off the 100-mile course and dashed into the woods. They threw away all that they carried and ran at top speed and then tried to find someone to put them up for the night. Finally, at dusk, three men came toward them, and to their relief, they wanted to help. They took us to an ancient mill at the edge of a village, and before long, we were the center of attraction at a full-dress banquet. Fifty people came to visit us within the hour. We went out with the people to stand in the square and sing the French national anthem. An officer said, You are free. The Germans will not be back. It was one of the greatest celebrations for DNFing a 100-miler in history. Frank Tozer was born May 24, 1879 in South Bristol, New York. He became a farmer from Ithaca, New York, and in 1910, at the age of 31, stirred up attention when he departed on a long endurance walk to New Orleans, Louisiana. He claimed that he was accustomed to walking long distances, and his hobby was pedestrianism. Tozer gained wide fame in 1938 when he set out from Ithaca, accompanying two others, a policeman and a fireman, on a 34-mile walking race to Elmira, New York. Tozer finished in first in 7 hours 50 minutes, beating the policeman, Daniel B. Flynn, by nearly 3 hours. After arriving, Tozer declined to ride home and completed his return trip in 8 hours 20 minutes. Tozer quickly added to this accomplishment in August 1938 by attempting a 100-mile walk to Binghamton, New York and back in 24 hours. He previously had accomplished it in 26 hours. He said, Only a rainstorm will stop me. It was reported at the 50-mile mark in Binghamton. Tired and dusty but undaunted, Frank Tozer walked into the offices of the Binghamton Press after 12 and a half hours. He was confident that he would be able to return to Ithaca before the deadline. But the 59-year-old walker had difficulty on his return trip. He tried to take a shorter route, but made a wrong turn and walked bonus miles. When the 24 hours expired, he was still about 20 miles from the finish. In 1943, Tozer, age 64, was living in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, and wanted to prove that war travel restrictions couldn't prevent people from getting away on vacations if they really wanted to go. He planned a 100-mile course to walk that involved a road walk from Harrisburg to York and back for the first 55 miles, a 5-mile walk through Harrisburg, and for the last 40 miles, 40 crossings of a mile-long bridge across the Susquehanna River. He was successful in accomplishing the 100 miles in 24 hours on Memorial Day. Later in 1943, Tozer returned to Ithaca and was employed at the Cornell University Library. In November 1945, at the age of 66, he measured off a two-mile stretch and walked it over and over again to reach 100 miles during a 24-hour period. This walk was very challenging because of a bitter cold wind. Tozer explained his secret to a long, happy life. Eat right, sleep right, and walk 10 miles a day. Each day, as weather permitted, he walked to and from work for a round trip of about 10 miles. He would encourage young people to walk with him, but they would give up trying to match his pace. He added that each summer he tried to get in at least one 100-mile 24-hour walk. He has been doing these sentry walks for his pleasure and health, chiefly to test his stamina and determine for himself that he could still take it. During May 1947, at the age of 68, he decided to walk 100 miles from Ithaca to Rochester, New York, to deliver a letter to the newspaper there and to visit relatives. 
His first attempt was a bust because of a bad rainstorm along the way that caused bad blisters. But in July, he was successful and finished his 100 miles in less than 24 hours. Sadly, on January 11, 1950, at the age of 70, Tozer died of a stroke while in the Cornell University Library. Alvin Moat Bergman of Leedsdale, Pennsylvania was a professional pre-war ultra-runner who would compete regularly in a 50-mile Pittsburgh leader race in the years around 1915. He was mostly a walker, but also ran a very impressive 74 miles in 12 hours in 1930 in Pennsylvania. During the Great Depression, he became well known as an accomplished walker, and by 1937 gained fame nationally as the birthday walker when he walked 50 miles on his 50th birthday. He claimed that he had already covered 250,000 miles lifetime on foot. Walking 100 miles in a day became Bergman's goal. In 1939, at the age of 52, he took his walking talents to Leedsdale High School track where he walked or ran 100 miles in 22 hours 5 minutes on the quarter mile track. It was reported, He frequently walks 20 miles before breakfast just to get up an appetite. On August 26, 1950, Bergman accomplished another sub-24 hour 100 mile walk. He walked through several towns with a car following to measure the distance on an odometer. When it showed 50 miles, he turned around and started back. He finished in about 23 hours 30 minutes, which was one of the first sub-24 hour 100 milers accomplished by an American in the post-war era of ultra-running. Stay tuned for more 100 Mile History. With that, this is Davy Crockett, and this is the Ultra Running History Podcast. I hope you run fast and far, enjoy life, get outdoors, and most of all, stay safe and don't take unnecessary chances. <laughs>